This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I am Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And welcome again to Leading from the Front. Our guest today is a leadership and diversity, equity, and inclusion expert. And I'm interested in talking to her about this whole idea of inclusion. I'm, I'm excited about that. She's an author of three children's books, did a TEDx speech on We All Have the Power to Build Bridges. Boy, that's a topic we can certainly talk about in leadership. She's currently serving as the chief change agent of Flying Elephant. The Milwaukee Business Journal recognized her as one of the community's most influential 40 under 40 leaders and the eight under 40 to watch for the University of Wisconsin School of Business. She serves on the national boards of Lyft and College Possible. She is the recipient of the United Way's Philanthropic Five Award, Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction Leadership Development Hero Award, and was a White House Fellowship Regional Finalist. She earned her Juris Doctorate, that's a lawyer, folks, from George Washington University, an MBA from the University of Wisconsin, and a Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Certification from Cornell. That's a mouthful of education. So we're going to learn a few things today. And the part that really grabbed me was she's a trained labor and birth doula and serves as the co-founder of the Birth Coach Milwaukee. So I'm going to sum this up. Very simple. You've got a mother and a wife, an award-winning community leader, an author, a lawyer, a business person, a YouTube TEDx speaker, and a doula. Wow. I'm really excited to welcome today Deanna Singh to our show and looking forward to learning a few things. Deanna, how are you doing today? I am wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you welcoming me to the show and getting a chance to talk to your listeners. Well, one of the things that we talk about in leadership and leaders is being a lifelong learner. And you have all these degrees and certifications. What do you think has driven you for that all of these years? Well, I think for me, it's number one, just a love of learning. And number two, recognizing that the more I know, the less I know, right? And so having this constant drive of being able to gain more experiences, meet more people, really expand what I think is possible. I will give just one note on my introduction. I'm actually a Georgetown Law graduate and not George Washington. And the only reason why I mention it is because I know there's a lot of people from Georgetown who continue to follow some of the work that I do. And I want to make sure they know where I'm from. There you go. <laughs> First time. Well, yeah, thank no you for worries. clearing that up. I appreciate it. That's my one mistake for the day. So one of the things in looking at your resume, we were talking a little bit about this before, is you have a law degree and an MBA and you work with companies now and you also worked at a law firm. Let's talk a little bit about your background, your experience, your path. What has kind of gotten you to where you are today 
And along that way, I might ask some questions about what are some of the differences that you see in leadership in a services firm, like a law firm, and then some of the businesses you work with today? For me, the number one thing that I have been pursuing, no matter where I was in my career, was this idea of purpose. And the way that I define my purpose is shifting power to marginalized communities. So for me, it was never about the title. It was never about even the geography or the pay or the organization, really. It was about whether or not I was going to be able to exponentially serve other people. And if I was, then that's what really moved me. And as a result, like you mentioned, Gary, I've had the opportunity to work in a number of different spaces, in the legal field, in the education field, in the tech space, in the medical field, just all of these different places I've been able to have leadership roles. And for me, one of the things that's been just awesome is that it gives me an opportunity to see the similarities that the organizations have and then also the differences, right? Really like a bird's eye view into what is happening when you think about different businesses and different business structures in our country. So what do you see as uh, some of the similarities? What do you see that's pretty consistent regardless of where you go in those organizations? So one thing that was really interesting to me, and this was one of those whoa moments in my own professional journey, I spent a lot of time working in nonprofit organizations, a lot of time, even when I was working for the law, it was for a nonprofit organization, right? Government organizations. And so when I went into my first pure corporation, I kind of had this bias and I didn't realize that I had it until I got there. And I thought, oh, everybody here is just going to be about the money and, you know, they're not going to have this uh, idea of service that I love so much about the nonprofit community. And what I found was that that was absolutely inaccurate. People who worked in for-profit and non-for-profit still had this burning desire to be service leaders. And so for me, one of the biggest things is that people go to work and they spend a lot of time at work, but the institutions that are really thriving and the cultures that are really thriving are the cultures that allow people to engage with that service leadership component and really allow for people to understand what their purpose is and encourage them to bring their purpose to work. Yeah, and I, I really like the fact that using the phrase service leadership, not servant leadership. We've heard that in the past, and I've I've been on a, a campaign to change our vocabulary around that because a servant is somebody that often does things for you that you don't need. But service is providing for people what they need, and they sometimes even are challenged to ask help for. So that's what a leader does is serve. I like that. You, you made a comment about your purpose around marginally positioned people. I don't, that's not the exact phrase. How did you say that? Sure. I'm looking to shift power to marginalized communities. Marginalized communities. The reason I picked up on that is being in business and leadership, I often think of the first level employees as a large part of the marginalized community. You know, they're doing a lot of the work. They have very little of the power. In today's day and age, the way things are going with our, our health challenges that we've got, that could be going on for a while. People are very afraid of their job. When I think about that, you think about marginalized communities and all these organizations you've been part of, what does a leader need to think about? What's the mindset of a leader to not allow them to fall into that kind of egotistical, got to do it my way, way of thinking? What have you seen? How have you helped people? Talk to me a little bit about that in your experience. 
So one of the things that has happened during this COVID epidemic is that I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of leaders who are now going into spaces where they, there is no, there's no game plan, right? There is no, this is what you do when you have a pandemic. There's, there's nothing. And so they're having to create a lot of that on their own. And I will tell you that the leaders that I'm working with that recognize this thing, and this really gets at what you were talking about, Gary, this idea that, you know what, in a lot of situations, it is important for me to be at the helm, to be really leading the organization, to be making decisions based off of where I can see and what my my lens looks like. But a lot of the leaders I've been talking to, the ones who have been really successful in navigating this, recognize that their lens is probably actually not the best one. Because they are so far removed from the client or they're so far removed from the customer that they don't really understand what needs to happen on that day-to-day basis to maintain and really stay strong during this moment. And so what I've seen them do, and this takes a lot of grace, this takes a lot of internal insight, this takes a lot of comfort in who you are as a person and as a leader, but I have seen them move aside and really let their frontline staff shine and make sure that their frontline staff's opinions are included in those larger decisions. Because at the end of the day, you can't keep your clients and you can't keep your customers. You're not going to have any big strategic plans for your, you know, for your, your senior leaders to, to work on. And so that shift, I think, has just been really profound. And I hope that leaders figure out a way to maintain that even outside of this crisis. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because what you're saying is that by giving up that power, giving up that control, all right, they might not even give up the power, but certainly the control and decision making, they're allowing people to do their job. And it's interesting. I was had a podcast just recently with uh, Matt Rock of VTech, and one of the things that he said to his leadership team as they were trying to organize three thousand people around the globe to respond to this, his simple phrase to his team was. You've been preparing for this moment your entire career. Now go execute and let's solve the problems and figure out how to do this. They have done a masterful job. And it's really what you're talking about. And I learned this at Procter & Gamble. Once you have the leadership and management skills in place, you have a lot more confidence to be able to handle whatever comes your way. Do you think organizations are doing a good job preparing their leaders and managers at this point? So I think one of the opportunities for a lot of organizations is being able to pour into that leadership and development so that they are strengthening their bench. A lot of times what I'm seeing in organizations is that the you know senior leaders have gotten the education, they have the pedigree, they've had the experience, right? And so they're doing really well. And so sometimes this idea of learning and development is not foremost for them because quite honestly, it's not part of what they need, right? They, they've sort of been able to acquire that in other spaces. And so they don't make it a priority. But the fact of the matter is you still have people who are in your organization who do require that. And you did require that, right, at a different point in your career. And so because it falls off of the priority list, what ends up happening is that there's a transition in leadership. You know, your, your, your CEO leaves, some of your senior team leaves, somebody retires, and then the company gets really frazzled because, yes, they might have always anticipated looking externally, but there's going to be a gap 
in time where the organization will probably have to operate without having some of that senior leadership and position. And if you haven't empowered your team along the way, that's where people get really frazzled and a lot of mistakes get made. And so I think it's an opportunity that a lot of organizations just really are not leveraging. In particular, in this moment, I think we feel the pain of it, right? Because now we're being called to exhibit all of these leadership skills that nobody actually had been prepared for it before. Yeah. So it's funny. I think I'm going to trademark this because what I heard you talking about is as people transition in leadership and people leave, it reminded me of the leadership and management approach to promotion. And it's the sink or swim, right? You throw them in the deep end of the pool, the ones that swim. Hopefully you don't have a bunch of dead bodies at the bottom of the pool. A few people that survived at the shallow end by crawling there and a whole bunch of people that now have a fear of water. Okay. And a, and a couple of people that survived. But really in transition, what you're talking about is the sink or swim organization, the transition of sink or swim. And while that's how we did it, and that's how companies fail, that's how companies go bankrupt. They don't prepare for this. And to me, the best way to prepare for it is to train, teach, develop leaders and teach skills. That's what I learned at P&G years ago. And I, I keep saying, why do you think P&G is so successful today? Because they still do it as part of their culture. It's internalized to their culture. And I think we're missing the boat a lot by not developing people and not giving them the opportunity to develop because the people that are in the leadership positions don't know how to coach, mentor, and train their people. So you've got this terrible double negative that's happening. Yeah, we're going to see a lot of organizations fail over the next few months, unfortunately, because of this. And everybody's going to say it's because of the COVID. It's not. It's because of lack of skill and lack of leadership, but always is. So I want to get back to kind of that comparison, if there's any difference in leadership approach in a law firm versus business. You said that you were surprised between what was going on with the nonprofit. You know, people really have a lot of heart to it. They believe in the purpose and how when you went into businesses, you saw, well, people still care about people. I mean, the good ones, right? Were there any other contrasts and comparisons that you can think of that strike you that you learned over the years that you'd like to share? So I think the other thing that's really interesting to me, and again, I'm going to go back to this nonprofit for profit dichotomy, because that's probably the line, the way that the line is at least discussed when we talk about what my own transitions have been, because I've just jumped back and forth over that line, you know, over, over, over the years. So whether it was whatever the sector was, you know, just back and forth. And one of the really interesting things to me is that I think on the nonprofit side, a lot of times people who are on the boards, people who are leading those organizations, people who are within those organizations have this mentality that because they're a non-for-profit, they don't need to operate the same way that a business does. Now, what's challenging about that is that a lot of these organizations that I've worked with are 10, 15, $150 million organizations. So they are business to the nth degree. I think on the business side, what happens is that you have a lot of leaders who think, oh, that philanthropy stuff, we can't be involved with that. That doesn't really help us get to our bottom line. And so you have people who have ingrained these ideas of for-profit and not-for-profit in their business practices. And the challenge that I have with that is that a for-profit and non-for-profit is just a tax status. It has actually nothing to do with whether you're a business or not. Both of those organizations and both spaces are businesses. And so that mentality can be very disheartening to the people who are working in the organizations. It can also position you mm. to make decisions that really aren't the best for the organizations either. 
So in the nonprofit side, the one that I get probably the most frustrated about and most adamant about is just because you're a nonprofit doesn't mean you can't actually make profit and you should be making profit and you should have savings and you should. So how do you, you know, change your structure so that you're allowing for that? And the for-profit side, when they say, oh, I can't get involved in philanthropy, all I can do is pay for a couple of tables and sponsorship, where they're missing the opportunity is being able to connect their organization and invest them in the community and being able to retain their employees and retain the spirit of their employees. So they're missing this opportunity of being able, like we just talked about leadership. You know, our great places for people to get leadership training for free, that's amazing leadership training the boards of nonprofits. So if you are an organization and you're like, I want my people to get mentorship, I want them to be able to see different facets of the business that they might not see in their daily job because it'll make them stronger. I want the community to care about us. The next time disaster comes along the way, we want to be considered part of the community, not this outsider who has to deal with all, you know, is only thinking about it from a PR perspective. That all happens when businesses have the forethought of being able to say, yes, this division between us and community cannot exist for us to function and be able to, to do really well. I get very passionate about this if you can't tell. <laughs> uh, no, I, I can't. But uh, thank you for <laughs> you know holding yourself back. I, I really like it. It's interesting because it brings up so many thoughts. I work with Habitat for Humanity down in uh, South Florida. And Nancy Robbins, the CEO there, took over about three or four years ago. She was a bank president. Okay, You talk about a financial world. Okay, and decided that she wanted to retire from that and do something else. She was too young to just hang up her her cleats and and walk off the field. So she decided to get a nonprofit, and she selected Habitat for Humanity. And they went from building four or five houses in 2014-15 to building over 20 this year because she runs it like a business. I always say that our job in leadership development is compassion and accountability. And what I see is a higher level of kind of the nice person, compassionate side on the nonprofit, where people are not, they don't want to be confrontational. They want to just kind of get the job done, but sometimes it's in their own time. And then on the business side, you go to the far end, like at Wall Street, which is 100% accountability. The only thing that matters is the numbers. And true effective leadership is somewhere in between. And what Nancy brought in was that real sense of heart, of compassion with a consistent accountability to get things done. And we're seeing in philanthropy this happening a lot more, aren't we? I mean, the Gates Foundation is based on this. You get a grant from them, you've got to prove to them that you're going to hit your numbers. There is this line and you have to be really vigilant about making sure that you're staying on it because there are some things that you can do in the nonprofit world that you wouldn't do in the business world and vice versa. Some things you do in the business world that you wouldn't do in the nonprofit world. That's fine. That is part of the culture and the structure and and what we actually, you know, absolutely need too in order to thrive. But where those lines are drawn, you know, when it comes to like finance, when it comes to accounting, when it comes to like, that's not where that shows up. Where it shows up is in thinking about programming in thinking about services and thinking about the scale, right? Like that's where it can show up. So it's just hiring practices just all those things. There's other places, but it's just interesting to see who chooses what and where and how they place it. Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate you being open and vulnerable and saying that my bias was going into the corporate world to think this and to learn differently, because that brings to light where I think a lot of people are in terms of either way, people think, you know, in the nonprofit world, it's not as accountable It's everybody's just having a good time. And these people are working hard. They are working hard butts off hard and not getting paid well because their heart is in it. And yet we need leadership there to hold them accountable because just because their intention is to have their heart in it 
doesn't mean that it's okay not to get the job done. And regardless of the organization, that's why we talk about, and by the way, another word for compassionate accountability, being a mom is tough love. It's the same thing. It's, we will not, we love our children so much that we're not going to let them fail. I say warm, but demanding. Okay. That's what I am with my children. I'm warm, but I'm demanding. That's a mom thing. I don't know about your husband. Is he warm and demanding with his sons? He is warm and demanding with our sons. He is excellent at it. He's excellent at it. That's really good. That's compassionate accountability, you know? You want to be understanding and empathetic and understand the emotion. At the same time, we're going to hold them accountable. It's great. So I want to go to a completely new topic because I know this is another passion of yours. And I was fascinated when we first started talking about this was a birth doula. And what got you into that? How you decided to become a doula? First of all, though, you need to define for some of our people what the heck that is. Sure. So a birth doula is a person who helps coach a birthing person through the birth process. So we use birthing person actually very intentionally just because, you know, there are different ways that babies come into the world. So we want to be open and inclusive, but the, you know, really you can provide support before baby is born during the actual birth and then postpartum too. And so the way this started, it's it's kind of a funny story, but I was standing outside the room of my sister-in-law as she was going through the birthing process. She actually, English is her second language. It's not her first language. And, you know, people are kind of coming and going in this net. And I went into, I was standing guard because my family, I love them to pieces, but they don't know how to really respect boundaries and stuff. So I was standing outside the door so nobody else would come in. And I had something that I needed to drop off in her room. And so I you know, went into the room and I tiptoed and I sat it down and I waved at my brother and my sister-in-law and the doctor was the name doctor says, okay, it's time to go. And I said, I love you all. I'll, I'll see you later right on the other side. I'm going to go back on the other side of the door. And my sister-in-law looked at me and said, mm-mm. She just pointed, shook her head and beckoned me to come closer to her. And I was like, well, do you want me to stay? And she's like, she just shook her head. Yeah, she wasn't talking at this point. I looked at my brother. I'm like, are you sure? And my brother, I could see in his face, he was sweating and gross. And he just gave me this look like, please don't leave. And so I ended up staying and I speak Punjabi, which is her first language. And so I was able to coach her, you know, help the doctor and coach her into delivering her, her baby. And so it was awesome experience, right? Totally not planned, just sort of happened. Well, we, she- we call that OJT. <laughs> what, what is- <laughs> that was instantaneous on the job that's training. A, that's you right. Became a, that's a sink or swim. You became a doula because you walked in the door. That's right. It's a sink or swim. <laughs> but you know, I can tell that I'm just going to make this comment because you won't say it about yourself, but you have a spirit about you. You have a way about you that just looking at your face and I wish our listeners could see your face because it's a face of brightness. Like you were talking about, I can understand why your sister-in-law said, no, I need you here because she could just feel that and see it. And she needed that right then. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. It was an incredible honor. Every birth I've been able to be in has been an incredible honor. And I really appreciate you saying that because I do feel very passionate about the women that I get to serve and just the baby, just the whole thing. So anyways, I did that. Then, you know, she told somebody else and then they invited me to come and ask me. And then so she told somebody else and somebody else. And so pretty soon it started to expand outside of my immediate network into this like larger network. And then I realized like, I just really love this. And you have to understand this about me, Carrie. If my sons get a cut on their finger, 
I get wheezy. Like, go tell your dad, I can't handle this, right? Like, I, I just get, and so I am not like a, you know, the, the whole blood, all this kind of stuff. I am, that is not my, my thing. But in the birthing room, it's very different. And, you know, spoiler alert, there's lots of blood in the birthing room, right? But it's totally different because something else kind of takes, takes over. So anyways, I was really loving this, you know, doing a lot of extra reading because I kept going into the spaces and the doctors assumed that I was a doula. I thought maybe I should just start to understand what that meant. And so I'm just doing my own research kind of for fun and, and, and learning and trying to be more of an asset to the people who are asking me to come in. And one of the things I found in my research is that the disparity in birth outcomes in our country is worse than in most third world countries. So if you're a woman of color, you're four times more likely to lose your life or lose your baby's life during birth, which makes no sense. Wow. And so, you know, as I started to read this, and obviously that's really upsetting because nobody, I mean, just that pain, that just, it's completely unfathomable, right? And so, you know, as I started to do some more research, what I found was that there's actually research that shows if you introduce a doula or a midwife, you can eliminate that disparity at almost 100%. Wow. So here I am doing it kind of organically, right? And I find this research. And so I thought, I can be part of the solution. We have these big disparities. I can be part of the solution. So we started a company, my partner and I, who's also an executive at a large company. We started a company called Birth Coach Milwaukee. And what we do is for every woman who can pay full price, we then provide services for a woman who otherwise couldn't afford it. And it has been an amazing journey. We got you know, certified. We opened the company. We had so much business. We've actually brought in another doula. We have a baby wrap now because we're trying to increase our ratio so we can serve more women who otherwise couldn't afford it. And it's just been just such an amazing... And then don't even get me started talking about the births. <laughs> it's been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had a couple yourself. So uh, you've been there. Yes. You know what it's like. Not something a man could understand as well, for sure. But th- this is great. You've transitioned your life in a lot of ways down your path, and I'm sure you're going to do other great things from being a lawyer to being a business person, to being a consultant, to being a speaker, to being all of these things, and then to help other women, as you talk about marginalized community and, and so many different things. I had originally talked about the word that I read. Hold on, I'm going to pull this up. Yeah, inclusion expert. I love that. I mean, it's just it's such a great positive way to see how we need to behave in all things that we do and in leadership, including all of those employees, all of the people that we interact with and how incredibly important, as I've always said in leadership, no involvement, no commitment. And if we don't involve everybody in the process and the the growth and the direction, we're not going to get their commitment. And we talk about engagement and commitment all the time in leadership and management. But you're engaged, you're committed, you're including, you're right in the middle of all that. And I'm proud of you. It's really cool. It's really nice to hear. Last question for you. You know, my favorite question, as always for leaders, is if you could write yourself a letter and and send it back 10, 15, 20. Normally I say 25 years, but that you'd be like five years old then, so I can't (laughs) say that. What would you say to yourself as a leader? What would you suggest to Deanna if you could write a letter and send it back a few years? So I think I actually did this and I published it in a book called Purposeful Hustle. So there is a book out there that's a leadership book that I wrote, again, Purposeful Hustle. And the whole idea there is how do you find your purpose and then how do you work in this space? And I think one of the things that I was really fortunate with just early in life is that I had a very clear understanding of what that purpose was. Now, I called it something different. I said it in a little bit different words, but but the spirit of it was really instilled in me. And I think that I've been 
really happy and I've had this crazy eclectic career and I still do because I've, I've stayed really true to that. Now there have definitely were, especially at the beginning of my career moments where I was like, Oh, this doesn't feel like it's on purpose, but let me try and, you know, fix it so it can be on purpose. Or I I just stayed too long or I doubted myself too much, or I, you know, I tried to adjust my purpose to fit something that wasn't the right thing or whatever it was. Right. So many different things. And now I'm so comfortable in my purpose that if something is off, I can just move. And it just took me a long time to get there. So I think that if I wrote, it would be that book, right? Here, stay in it. You're okay. It's going to be all right. Even when it's the worst, it's probably going to be the very thing that propels you forward. But stay true to your purpose and encourage other people to do that. And I just wish someone had told me that earlier. And I wish that I could have shared it earlier because I do think that it's the literally like the difference between success and failure in my life. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great way to end because, uh, purposeful hustle. I, I like that phrase. And we talk about it in our leadership program. The very first thing that we get our leaders to do is to write a personal mission statement and to really go inside and understand what's important to them. And here's the thing that, that uh, when I say that to people and they say, well, I don't know what I want to do. I said, writing a personal mission statement isn't about what your career is. It's about the person that you are. How do you want to show up every day? You know, how do you want to talk to people? And it's something that we all struggle with and we need that compass to kind of remind us of the person we want to show up with every day. I started studying leadership when I was 16 and I knew at a very young age, I was going to do something great. And I get to do that today. You know, talking to you, I hope, you know, there's 10 people out there that will hear you and maybe do something. And if we can touch just a few people each day, we've made a huge difference in the world. I love that. Stick to your purpose. I can see the smile on your face that you're, you're living your purpose now every day. I certainly am. I love being able to coach individuals. I love being able to consult with companies that are looking at that inclusion space. I love being able to work with new families as they're growing. I just feel very, very fortunate. Well, Dan, if there's anything I can ever do to help you, I hope that you will call on me because I like to stay connected with people that are so committed to their purpose in any way that I can help. I would uh, love to do that. Same here. And uh, I will include some of your contact information in the write-up, but if somebody needs to get a hold of you, how can they get a hold of you, Deanna? So there's a website. It's Deanna Singh, D-E-A-N-N-A-S-I-N-G-H.com. And you can go there, but I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook. So if social media or Instagram, if that's easier for you, I would love to be connected. I just think that there's so much good that can happen in the world when we when we connect with other great people. Yes. And uh, you're still in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, right? I am still in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah. So look for Deanna Singh in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on LinkedIn, and you can find her and uh, if you need her help, I'm sure she, you can reach out to her. Deanna, thank you so much for your words of wisdom, but mostly I hope people feel the spirit that you bring to the simple podcast. And it's just been a joy. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thank you for joining me today on Leading from the Front. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. 
For more of his music, visit petercats.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.